it was a dark and stormy night, or day, or afternoon. Oh, hold on. There's something in my eye. Ugh, it's my contact. My dumb eye doctor gave me samples of a brand that I've never heard of. They discontinued the brand I've been wearing for years, and now it's behind my eye. It's behind my eye. <sighs> Ow. Ugh. Okay. Oh, it's back. Oh, I can see now. Okay, we're good. Sorry. That was so unprofessional of me. Let's start over, shall we? It was stormy and dark, and the cloud cover made all the dawn-to-dusk lights turn on. Stormy Dark, on the 30th floor, lit some candles because her psychic just called to warn her that she was about to lose power. Throughout the building, tenants of the Innocents asked Alexa or Google or Barb to turn on the lights. But you know what happens in the dark. The darkest things, the darkest things happen in the dark. This is Blinding Innocence. The building superintendent of the Innocence was definitely one of the tenants that was dying to live at the Innocence. Or, well, technically, he died living there. We're not sure if he loved the Innocence as much as some of the other tenants. He didn't live up to the hype, did he? Not only was he not dying to live there, he was one more victim of the innocence. Welcome to the most notorious condominium complex in... Dewanye Remington, the show's creator, wanted his set to be as realistic as possible, and not only was that wishful thinking, he was unfortunately lucky. The building he renovated and turned into the amazing set of blinding innocence turned out to have been built upon an old graveyard. People, pets, furniture, you name it, it was buried there. It was once a historic part of the city, but the paperwork went missing. So whoever was in charge of such things in 1942 decided it was totally fine to build a tall complex for the rich to live. And then, just a few years later, it was abandoned. It wasn't until 1992 when paperwork anthropologists realized the importance of the property when the paperwork was found. Now, the set of Blinding Innocence is a historic landmark. Whether it's fiction or fact, the innocence is haunted. And that's what makes the setting a great place for such an award-winning drama. And it's horrible to know that the building superintendent, Mr. McClick-Click... Mc Mr. McClickle, uh, anyways, was the most recent victim of the innocence. Now, get into my DeLorean because we're going back in time to find out how it happened. But don't you dare touch the flux capacitor. As usual, Sean McClucal, the building superintendent of the Innocents, had hiccups. He walked out of his <coughs> office and turned off the light. The payroll for the doorman was finished, and he had given George the funds needed for more Nest cameras. It was way more cost-effective than hiring a <coughs> surveillance company. He had an early bedtime due to his early morning hot nude pudding yoga class, but he wanted to redo his voicemail message before he went to bed. 
He picked up his phone, typed a few buttons, and got ready to begin his message. You've reached the phone of Mr. McClue... <laughs> Ukul, the building superintendent of the Innocents. Please leave your message at the sound of the beep. <coughs> the beep sounded, and he yawned <coughs> and walked to his bedroom. And then he thought he saw a dark shadow float in front of his large windows. He had left them open to allow the wonderfully cool spring air in, and they drifted and floated in such a way that he felt like he was in a music video, for total eclipse of the heart. <laughs> who's there? He said out loud. <laughs> Silence. I said, who's there? His skin broke out in goose flesh, and his instincts kicked in, and he karate chopped the air. I will get you, he said. <laughs> but it was too late. Before he could defend himself with the crane kick he learned from the karate kid, a blade stuck into his, <laughs> his chest. Blood bubbled out of his mouth as he collapsed by the <laughs> front door. Blinding Innocence goes through so much fake blood each season that they had to invent their own recipe to help curb the cost because they were repainting walls and replacing way too much carpet and upholstery. Thankfully, Duanye Remington was able to create a formula that was easy to clean off of everything. The first time they used it was back during this one episode in the 90s with the character Deborah Cleverpatch. You remember her, right? She was being haunted by a ghost. I won't get into what the ghost was, but there was this one scene where Deborah was on the phone talking to her best friend. She was shoving rotten fish heads down in the disposal when her retainer fell out. It bounced on the sink and slipped down into the drain. And then Deborah stuck her hand down into the garbage disposal to get it out. Oh, you know what happens next. Oh, I could barely watch after that. It was so awful. I think I even screamed, but I couldn't take my eyes off the scene. It was almost worse than the Red Wedding from the Game of Thrones. I don't know if I'll be able to get through it. Just talking about it makes my skin crawl. I shouted to the TV, Girl, just leave it there. You do not want to put that back in your mouth. Oh, but she did. She pulled the retainer out of the hole, and it was covered in black and gray gook. There was even fish eyeballs stuck on it. And she shoved that thing back into her mouth, and you could hear it squish. And when she smiled, brown juice oozed down her chin. It was so awful. I wish the ghost turned the disposal on while her hand was in there. It would have been more humane. Oh, yeah, the blood. Sorry. So... There was this one scene where she was fixing her grandmother's old metal desk fan because it wasn't oscillating. While it was unplugged and the grate was off, the ghost made it come to life and it totally chopped Deborah Cleverpatch up. Blood and grizzled bits of Deborah covered the living room. But the crew was able to clean it all up within an hour and they were ready for a flashback scene in the same room. I've got a feeling. Mr. McClucal won't be the only death this season. More blood is bound to be spilt.
there was a knock on Henrik's door. I'm coming, he shouted. He finished buttoning up his crisply ironed white shirt, kept the button closest to his Adam's apple open, and grabbed the toothbrush on his dresser. He looked at himself in the mirror, winked at his fine-ass self, and used the toothbrush to fluff and fluff and brush and tease and fluff and primp and tease and fluff and pull out his brown chest hair. He opened the door, ready to breathe in Danica's essence, but frowned when he saw who it really was. Oh, Jameson, it's you. What do you want? he asked. Panicked, Jameson said breathless, I've been knocking on every door up here to find Natasha. She's not answering her phone, and there's been a murder. I just pray it's not her. Another murder, Henrik said annoyed. Didn't we just have one? Henrik's chest hair bristled at the thought of Danica being the victim. He was still trying to woo her, regardless of her conquest, whatever that involved. But he knew, deep down, deep, deep down, yeah, down there, do you feel it? He knew deep down he could win her over. He left Jameson at the open door and grabbed his phone that was sitting on the table. He dialed Danica's number, but she didn't pick up. He walked out of his door and saw Jameson continue to knock on doors down the hall, and he called out, Danica's not picking up either. Do we know how many bodies there are? Jameson shrugged. I'm going to check on Danica to make sure, Henrik said. He got to the elevator, pressed the button, and waited. Come on, come on, he moaned. He should have gone to the other side of the building and used the stairs. It would have been faster, but whatever. Jameson joined him. None of the residents on this floor have seen her. I'm coming with you, he said. They got onto the elevator and pressed the button to Danica's floor. You know I never liked you, Jameson said to Henrik. What have I ever done to you, Henrik retorted. He rubbed the curls of his chest hair that protruded out from the top of his shirt twisting the hairs between his thumb and index finger, rolling it, twisting it. Henrik bit his lower lip. That's why, Jameson said, pointing. Henrik looked at himself in the mirror walls of the elevator, saw that he was nervously playing with his chest hair again and stopped biting his lip. I'm just nervous, Henrik said. You must be nervous all the time, Jameson said. Before Henrik could say more, the doors opened, and they both ran to Danica's door. Henrik knocked, but no answer. He knocked again, no answer. He knocked thrice, again there was no answer. He knocked thrice, or whatever the fancy word for four was, and, Damn it, just open it, Jameson said, pushing Henrik out of the way. He put his hand on the doorknob and it turned, allowing both of them to enter. This is not a good sign, Henrik said. No lights were on in the condo, and Henrik called out, Danica, are you murdered? No answer. She must be the victim, Henrik cried out. Jameson led the way as they walked down the hall to her bedroom. The door was ajar, and there was pleasurable moaning and quiet gasps for air. 
Jameson pushed open the door, looked at what he saw, and shouted, Natasha! Danica! What are you doing? Oh, good. The storylines are converging. Like any soap opera, there's always a long list of storylines. Storylines, storylines. I don't know how the writers keep coming up with them. You would think everything would have been done by now. But as the times change, so do the storylines. Betty Lou has just escaped another kidnapping and reported the blood coming out from Mr. McClucklickle's front door. Henrik and Jameson just discovered Danica and Natasha together doing something. Ms. Frizzle just drove the school bus through the rectum of an elephant, and the kid shouted, Science is cool! George is helping to make sure Inspector Nards and Ms. Wiener have everything they need in order to investigate the murder. But what about Jordan Nightingale? Let's go see what he's been up to. Jordan Nightingale got onto the elevator with his new plastic tub that was just delivered from the container store. As the doors closed, he set the container down and looked at himself in the mirror. He felt like himself, but he didn't look like himself. The man he was looking at had a bushy brown mustache, fluffy huge sideburns, and a cigar hanging from his mouth. This man was also wearing a cowboy hat. If Jordan didn't know any better, he would have thought he was looking at Tedford Hooten Boots from the 33rd floor. Tedford Hooten Boots was filled with the yee-haw, and nobody ever expected him of doing anything. Hooten Boots' only crime was going to the Cracker Barrel. Jordan dug his fingernails into the flesh of his forehead. They sunk into a pliable material, and he began to pull. A layer of skin stretched off, and the mustache and sideburns and everything else that made Jordan look like Tedford was now elongated and looked like a scene from Beetlejuice. He took the mask and smashed the sticky flesh-like substance into a ball. Nobody knew this, but Jordan was a master of disguises. He dropped the remains of his mask and the cigar into the cowboy hat got off on the 23rd floor, his floor, and went to the garbage room. He opened the chute that went to the dumpsters and tossed that cowboy hat away. Yee-haw, he said. He walked back to his residence, his new container in tow, when he heard voices. As he approached, he saw that it was George the doorman talking to two people wearing trench coats and writing on notepads. George the doorman saw Jordan approach and went to console Betty Lou, who was crying, <laughs> huddled on the floor, crumpled up against the wall, sobbing and drawing in breaths. Detectives, Jordan said, stopping. What seems to be the problem? He looked down to see the red stain on the carpet and the open door to Mr. McClucklickle's residence. Ah, Betty Lou found another murder, Jordan said, answering his own question. You seem familiar with murder, Inspector Nard said. Everyone who lives at the Innocence is familiar with murder, 
It's how we live our lives. You know this, Nards, Jordan said. Is that a confession? Wiener asked, scribbling furiously onto her notepad. And then she turned to Betty Lou and shouted, For Pete's sake, woman, pull yourself together. He's just being glib, Nard said. Wiener, this is Jordan Nightingale. He is one of the residents here. I also went to college with his father. Nards looked down at the container in Jordan's arms. That's not Rubbermaid, he said. Jordan responded, Well, it looks like you have another assistant on another case here at the Innocence. You just can't keep them around, can you? Pointing at Wiener. Does this one know what happened to your other one? Wiener looked at Jordan with concern. Before walking away, Jordan said, If I can be of any assistance, Nards, let me know. Is there something we should be on the lookout for? Wiener held up a plastic baggie with an emerald-colored earring. It was large, dangly, and it looked like costume jewelry. Do you know who this belongs to? Wiener asked. That's a very nice earring, Jordan said. I would say it belongs to Betty Lou over there. Betty Lou heard this, stood, and shouted, How dare you accuse me of wearing such an unsightly pair of earrings? Wiener continued, If we can find its match, we may be on to something. Nard said, But you know as well as I do that it won't be that easy. Wiener and Nards walked back into the condo where the police officers and crime scene investigators were busy taking pictures and touching everything with white-gloved hands. One officer was in the corner practicing a pantomime of being stuck in a box. Jordan turned and continued to walk back to his place, and as he passed Betty Lou, he scowled at her, holding up his container and said, "'Thanks for nothing.'" Betty Lou glared at him, her face awash with black mascara lines. She sobbed some more and leaned her wet face against George. She spoke, but it was muffled. Did you hear Jordan accuse me of murder? Once Jordan got to his unit, he bolted the door, looked out the people, and then briskly walked to his bedroom. He opened the door to his massive walk-in closet, to reveal a plethora of clothes on hangers, shoes on shelves, and many, many plastic containers similar to the one he was holding. He walked over to his hamper and pulled out a black trash bag that was filled with what looked like Legos. He pulled the lid off his newest container and then dumped the contents of the trash bag into the bin. Before him lay an entire container filled with emerald earrings, similar to the one found at the murder scene. Welcome to the innocence where everyone is just dying to live. What did Henrik and Jameson see Danica and Natasha doing? What will happen the next time Jordan Nightingale and Betty Lou are in a room together? Will anyone ever pronounce Mr. McClugle's name correctly? 
Tune in next time for... Blinding Innocence.